All of us are going to leave here today. We're going to go back. You know, we're, we're, we're here this morning. We're together. We're gathered. We're trying to be neighbors with each other here in this auditorium or online. But we're going to leave here today, and we're going to be presented with the opportunity to do things with our time. You know, school starts again tomorrow. We're going back to work tomorrow for some of us. Some of us might have to go back to work later today. And so we're going to have some chunks of time to do things with. Now, if I were to give you, let's just say arbitrarily, 37 minutes of time, what could you do with your 37 minutes of time? If you had the choice to take 37 minutes, what might you do with it this afternoon? 37 minutes, I feel, is like a really awkward amount of time. It's just enough time to think you can get things going and get something started, but yet um, not really get wrapped up with it. You know, I could go home and I could work on a project. I started this week deciding I was going to do some home renovations, and so I borrowed a concrete saw. and I started to get after my floor uh, and pour footer. I've never poured a footer before in my life, and so uh, it's been really interesting. And so I might think that I might be tempted to go home and work on a house project, but there's no way I can pour uh, about uh, six cubic feet of concrete in 37 minutes now, can I? So I might try and do something a little different. I might try and clean up the house or take my car for a wash if I were inclined to do that. There might be loads of laundry, right? It's the weekend. How many of you guys have loads of laundry sitting around the house right now? Oh my gosh. It's there waiting to be put away, right? Or for the kids to come down and grab their stuff out of it and leave it all spilt all over the floor. That is very true. 37 minutes. It's enough time to waste on your phone, isn't it? You could look at a lot of memes. You could look at a lot of TikTok videos in 37 minutes and not realize that 37 minutes have passed you by. 37 minutes is just the amount of time to think you can get something done but not really get anything done at all. 37 minutes is also the average amount of time that a family actually has together during the week of quality time. There was a survey done by uh, Anaheim, the city of Anaheim, California, where they surveyed about 2,000 families, and they found that on average, the typical family has only about 37 minutes of, of quality, connected time together during the week, which uh, feels at least about right, Maybe even a little high when I think about our schedules, right? I think about being at home. I've got kids at different schools. You know, we have different jobs, different situations. Uh, I've got kids uh, playing flag football, another kid doing swim. We've got all the school activities. We're going to have a Franklin skate night this week, man. It's what we live for at my house, Franklin skate night at the Liberty. I don't know if I can say this or not. Roller, roller radium? Is that what? Eh, eh, I, got, I got close enough, right? <laughs> So there's all these things going on, and it's like, do I actually sit down face-to-face with the, the mo- my most immediate neighbors and even get 37 minutes of un- uninterrupted quality time with them in my own household? I would struggle to say that even with my most immediate neighbors, the people who live in my own house, do I actually get 37 minutes of uninterrupted time with them face-to-face without a screen on or something like that? And so if we're struggling, if you and I are struggling in our society to get even 37 minutes of connected quality time with our most immediate neighbors, the people who live in our, under, in our own household, how much time do you think we spend face-to-face spending quality time with the people that live to the left, to the right, in front, or behind us? 
hardly any at all. And there's actually, um, there's, there's a big study of this. It's one of these things, since the turn of the century, our time with our actual neighbors has plummeted. Um, I have a graph here, chart here, I wanted to put up for you guys. And basically it's going to show that since the 1970s, <laughs> the neighboring script has entirely flipped. In the 1970s, when they started tracking some of this stuff, about 30% of people spent daily time, or at least twice a week, connecting with their most immediate neighbors, and about 20% never spent any time at all with their immediate neighbors. And it does not take a rocket scientist, or even really a social scientist, or even a middle school uh, data class to see how the script has completely flipped since the 1970s. Now, this only tracks through 2012, but now we can see we're in 1970, 30%, one out of every three of us, spent daily time connecting with our most immediate neighbors, building relationships with them. Now, we're up to almost 35%, and I would bet we're even closer to 40% now in the 10 years that have passed. We're probably close to 40% of us never spend time with our immediate neighbors at all. And I think we can feel that change. Some of you were alive in the 70s, weren't you? And that's great. <laughs> Celebrate that. <laughs> you can remember that feeling. But now some of us are growing up into this world where we don't understand the concept of neighboring at all. I don't have a chart for this, but um, I know that uh, Cigna, you know the big insurance company, Cigna Health Insurance, they did a big study in 2019 where they surveyed all kinds of people because they know or at least we're starting to find out that loneliness, chronic loneliness, can take off about 15 years of your life expectancy. Just being lonely, not having anyone to connect with, to connect to, can reduce your life expectancy up to 15 years. And as a health insurance company, they're very invested in that, figuring out how much they're going to have to pay out. <laughs> And how, right, they can keep from paying out in a lot of ways, right? They found that one out of every five people felt like they had no one to talk to. Absolutely no one to talk to. That's why we hear things now about there being this so-called loneliness epidemic. We hear it. We hear loneliness epidemic. We hear it in the news. We see it on the radio. We hear it on the radio. see it on the news. But what does it really mean? Can we actually measure how connected or unconnected we are? Because it's hard. It's hard. You might feel like you're connected, but do we have any kind of objective data points to determine how connected we are? And I'd like to suggest that we can. And so what I'd love for us to do is I'm going to put up a little graph on the screen here. And what I'd love for you to do is if you have a pen, paper, one of our handouts, make a tic-tac-toe board, okay? I want you to make a tic-tac-toe board on your paper. It should look like that, all right? Now, if you don't have a piece of paper on your phone, just make uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. Just one, two, three, four, five, six, because, well, I'm sorry, I can't add. Eight. Eight little spots. I don't care what it is, but try and go around and see if you can name. Can you name the people that live around you or live nearest to you? Because you may not live on a block. You may live in an apartment. You may live out in the country, a, a rural place. It doesn't matter. But when you think about your closest neighbors around you, near you, with you in the center, go. 30 seconds. Go. How many can you, get, how many can you write down? I want the names. All right? Think about this person on that corner. 
You're looking across the street. You're visualizing. You hear someone drive by. Talk to your neighbor if you need to come up with it. Who do you know? Can you come up with your closest neighbors and their names? Are we there? All right. Cut you off. We only got so much time today, guys. Okay, so don't want the zones killing me after this. So how do you feel if you, if you feel like you did pretty good? You got more than half. Raise your hands. It's okay. Be proud. You got more than half, right? How many of you feel like you got less than half? Don't be ashamed. It's just being honest. There's nothing to be ashamed about. That's fine. What we just did there is we measured the width of our connections. I want you to think about it like dimensions, okay? So right there, we just measured the width of your connectedness. Could you at least come up with names around you? Now, if we were to take that to the next level, what about the depth? I want you just to think about this. You don't have to write this down, but I want you to kind of process uh, mentally with me right now. Do you know their last name, too? (laughs) Some of you got off easy because you just knew their first name, right? How many of you know their last name? How many know their maybe spouse's or partner's name? Maiden name. How do you know, how many of you know a relative that they might have? Like one of their extended family members, right? Like that's the thing that kind of happens, right? Like there's birthday parties, right? And you'll be like, what's going on across the street? You know, it's like, have you ever met an extended family member of theirs? Do you know what they do for a living? Do you know how they make an income? Do you know their kids? Do you know their dog's name? Right? So, so what we think of as connectedness, it's not just about width. Sometimes I think we can feel pretty good of ourselves if we measure just the width of our connections, but what if we were to try and measure the depth of our connections? Would we feel better about that, about ourselves, or would we start to see, well, maybe I don't have this connected thing really figured out at all? And I'm going to give you one more measurement. Again, I just want you to think about this. You don't have to write it out, but that idea of length. How long have you known your neighbors? How's the length of time? Or here's another example. How long has it taken you to introduce yourself to a new neighbor? Now, this is very uh, relevant for me because in the past, I would say 12 months, I've had six new neighbors all move in. I've had the person across from me move in. I had a new person move into the right two months ago. Uh, The ownership of this house changed possession um, in the last 12 months, and somebody else moved in. I have somebody on the corner here. I have somebody behind there, a couple that I, and then a couple, and I don't even know who lives behind me anymore because it's a rental, and I just don't know what's going on right now. (laughs) Now, it took me two months to introduce myself to this neighbor on this side of me. I happen to know the neighbor that moved across the street from me, Uh, beforehand, so I get off on that one, okay? That's a freebie. That's my free bingo space there, right? But I still haven't introduced myself to the person over here. I still haven't introduced myself to the people that live there for at least a year, and I have no clue who lives behind me or if it's just being kept up right now. So what we've just done is we've measured what social scientists call social capital. Social capital is a word that's getting used a lot more, and if you were to go all the way back to Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, there's a lot more studies on it, but social capital refers to the amount of positive connections that you have in your network. And what social scientists are finding out about social capital is is that the more social capital you have, 
the more connected you are. The more that you know others, that you know who lives in that house, you know what they do for a living, they know that about you. The healthier we are in our lives and the healthier we have, uh, the healthier our communities are. Social capital is really where we flourish as humans. Humans that have more social capital in their life live longer, are happier, and do better in life. Now, what, what social scientists call social capital, I think we know by common sense as neighboring. Again, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, it doesn't take even a social scientist to know that if you like your neighbors, or at least relate well to your neighbors, if you know your neighbors and are known by your neighbors, your life just kind of feels better. It's something that's kind of intuitive in us, that when we are neighboring well and when we are neighbored well, our lives and our communities go better. It's a common sense thing. So if it's, but if it's such common sense, why do we struggle with it so much? Why do those data graphs, why do those charts show it moving in opposite direction? Social capital is dropping. People feel more unconnected. People feel lonelier than ever. If it's so common sense that if we're known and known others, we do better in life, why are we not fighting for it more? Why aren't we doing something about it? Now, I'm going to suggest kind of three factors underlying the surface. Um, they're, they're, they're not the exhaustive list, but there's three things we can think about, about why we're losing the battle for neighboring, why we're losing the battle for social capital in our lives. And I think one thing is, is you're going to find that these, these are unsurprising and unshocking, which makes them more dangerous. Because we, we believe that we can't really do anything about these factors, because we feel like we're victims to our modern world and modern way of life, we don't possess any kind of internal responsibility to do anything about it. We kind of let ourselves off the hook because we think, oh, this is just the world we live in. It would take too much effort to change the way things are. And so we play the role of victim instead of agent in our neighborhoods and our communities. The first factor is that feeling of busyness, right? We all feel busier than ever. And what I want to show you is that video that the 37-minute study came from by the city of Anaheim. So we'll go ahead and play that right now. How much time do you spend with your family? Well, according to new research, families get just 37 minutes of quality time together per day. The study of 2,000 parents with school-aged children by Visit Anaheim found families get less than 45 minutes of quality time together per weekday. The amount of quality time does jump to two hours and 40 minutes on weekends, but many families are still struggling for time to enjoy each other's company without distraction. That might be because 60% of parents describe their daily lives as hectic, and one in four say the lack of quality time is a real problem. The research also revealed that the majority of parents say they only get 12 date nights at the most per year, which might be why more than half of parents believe that they don't get enough alone time with their partners. The study also showed the lack of time together also extends right into Americans' vacations. The average family polls that they get seven days a year where they are away on vacation altogether. However, it can be hard to get the best of everything while away as a family, which is why 55% of those studied said they are constantly looking for things they could do as a whole family. See, families are reporting, that was done in 2016. 
again, I can't imagine what it is now, even seven years later, feel like they're busier than ever. But the, the social science, if you dig into it, reveals that we're actually not that much busier than we used to be as far as it comes to vocation and jobs. is The amount of time we spend working um, here for us in America, also Western European, it's been about the same as it always has been. But we report feeling busier. And I think it's not because um, we don't care about our families. It's not that we don't care about our relationships. It's not that we don't care about our communities. I think it's because, in, in a sense, we almost care too much. <laughs> we want our kids to get ahead. We want to get ahead in life. We want to make sure our kids, especially in our communities, they have the most opportunity they can to, to build their resume. And so we have found that I think what exists in our culture, what exists now in our society, is really this kind of competitive scarcity mindset. That there's only a limited amount of college spots at the best schools, right? And so if I want my kid to get ahead of some other kid, I really need to push the pedal on this thing. I need to make sure they get involved at an early enough age that they can outcompete the kid next to them so that my kid can have a better job, that my kid have a, can have a better life. My seventh grader brought home an application for NJHS this week. You know what that is? The National Junior Honor Society. And I thought, oh man, it's starting. <laughs> My 12-year-old is starting to build his resume. And that's how, it's, that's how it's explained, right? Is that this is going to look good on a college, this is going to look good. And so already that mindset of, okay, you got to prepare yourself. You've got to get ahead. You've got to have more on your resume than somebody else does so that your life is better. and you Because again, there's not enough to go around. What is that? That's a scarcity mindset. And it creates a fear, I know, inside of a lot of parents that we're not doing enough to get our kids ahead in life. And so even though um, from a work perspective, we're not any busier than we've ever been, we fill our time with things that comes out of a scarcity mindset and we feel pressure the time that we do have is, is pressurized like it's never been before, that we have to get ahead. We have to take those side jobs. We have to hustle so that we can outcompete the neighbor living next to us. Another factor, and again, we can't avoid this one, is technology. Technology has enabled us to live less human-to-human -human lives. It's just plain more convenient. And you can't avoid technology. I think, again, that's why we're victims. That's why we, or we, or we allow ourselves to live in a victim mindset here. It's like, what do you do about it? I mean, my kid comes home with an iPad. You know, everything's technologically driven. I can't go to a Chiefs game and use cash anymore, okay? Like, you, they won't take your money. Who would have thought that world could exist where they won't take physical cash at large events? It all has to be digital. Now, there's no way to avoid it. But that doesn't mean we have to be victims about it. See, technology is allowing us to live more convenient lives, but at what cost? The cost right now is the amount of human-to-human -human interaction we just don't get on a daily basis for the sake of being more productive with our time. I think about how um, I, we shop for groceries through Instacart now. I used to go into a grocery store and have to practice being a polite human. I mean, I didn't have to, and there are people that don't. <laughs> but you think about the amount of human-to-human -human interaction that just naturally happens when you have to go into a grocery store, right? Excuse me, pardon me, why don't you go first? Oh, could I, excuse, oh let me sneak right past you there, right? You know. All that's gone. 
If you, if you, if you uh, go full throttle, full hilt here, you know, with the whole technology thing, you know, we don't buy things, we don't go to stores, everything's shipped to our house. And so collectively, as a society, social capital's just going down, period. And that results, that has a cost. I wouldn't trade technology and, and all the advance we've made for anything in the world, but that doesn't mean it's still not without cost. This week, we happened to have on our campus um, some students that were involved in Northland CAPS. Raise your hand if you know what the CAPS program is. Okay, Northland CAPS is a program. Um, they needed some office space to rent, and we're trying to be more free about what spaces we have to offer people. And so um, they, it stands for Center for Advanced Professional Studies. And so students from Lawson to Platte City, to North Kansas City, to Liberty, Park Hill, they apply for this Northland CAPS program where it's an alternative high school program for juniors and seniors where they come and they work jobs. So they might decide, I'm going into the healthcare field. And so they would maybe go to their high school class for a couple hours, but then go finish the day out at North Kansas City Hospital. Or they, had, they happened to have, just this particular week, the director for Feed Northland Kids was working with them, and their assignment was to create a 5K for this person. So real-life job experiences, again, to put on a resume, to, to build that up. But I was talking to the director, who I, I found out I'm related to randomly, which was really odd, but he said, um, his name's Brett, Brett said that he will spend the first two weeks just teaching juniors and seniors how to be professional. <laughs> just how to look clients in the eye. <laughs> he will teach people, uh, these juniors and seniors, just how to shake a hand. How to walk in a meeting. They will practice sitting down at a round table not knowing other people. <laughs> and how to ask questions and have a conversation when you don't know that other person. The first two weeks of that whole curriculum is going to be around just how to have human, act, human interactions that just aren't happening anymore. And so I wouldn't trade any of our technological advancements that we have, but we have to ask ourselves, at what cost? What is the deficit? There's always benefits, but there's also always deficits as well. I think what kills connection, though, more than anything else, and this isn't anything new to our society, this is something that's been around since the creation of the world. And what kills our connection and social capital more than anything else is our self-centeredness. Our own self-centeredness, that inner tension of, am I going to do what I want to do? Or am I going to live putting the needs of others before myself? That is an inner struggle that we feel in any kind of neighboring situation. That's with a, a spouse, a partner. <laughs> am I going to live according to my agenda? Or am I going to consider your needs more important than my own? Am I going to continue to fight you and live things this way? That's in a family, again, if we think of our own homes as their own little micro-neighborhoods and a micro-ecosystem. Am I going to make sure my agenda is what's on the table? We're always fighting a tension of doing what we want to do, what feels good to us, versus doing what's better for others. I think, I wonder at least, is it any coincidence that the most self-centered people often end up the loneliest in life? Because who really loves hanging out with a narcissist? <laughs> do you? Do you love hanging out with people 
that are self-absorbed and only talk about themselves? What happens to somebody who lives in a life of self-centeredness? They often end up alone because people can't stand to be around them. And we can also flip that script and point that back at ourselves, can't we? When we are self-centered, people don't like to be around us. I feel the most distance between my wife. I feel the most distance between me and my kids, a complete lack of intimacy and connection when I'm really caught up in my own agenda, when I'm most stressed about my work, when I'm not asking questions about her, when I only talk about my day and tell her only about my things, that's when we struggle the most. When I make my life all about me and making my life work without thinking about the wake that I'm pushing, the emotional wake I'm pushing into the lives of others because I'm living out of a self-centeredness and not an other-centeredness. Self-centeredness is the epicenter of sin. The Bible refers to something called sin, and it's not a, just a psychological state. It's not just a behavioral state. The Bible claims that sin is this inward falling short of, this inward missing the mark of who God created us to be. That humans were created in God's image. We are called by the Bible image bearers. We're meant to reflect God. And so God is an other-centered being. He puts us first. And our sin is we put ourselves first. We live out of a self-centered reality. We think life revolves around us. Not the connections and relationships we have. I read this quote the other day by an author I like. um, And it says this. It says, our identity is located not in the impulse of selfhood, but in deliberately maintained connections. And I love that because what it's really trying to say is is that we don't find ourselves. We don't find who we really are by looking for ourselves. We don't find who we really are by following compulsions and impulses of selfhood. We find who we are through our deliberately maintained connections with others. And I, I just think that's so true. You don't really find out what somebody's made of. You don't really assess someone's character by how they serve themselves, do you? Don't you assess someone else's character by how they treat you? We are our most self. We are our best self when we lived out of other-centeredness, not self-centeredness. Jesus says it like this. It's in uh, Mark 8. Verse 35, Jesus says, If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. I think so many of us are caught up in trying to get the best life that we can. Again, we live out of that competitive mindset. Most of us aren't even aware of the depths of self-centeredness that we live out of. And what Jesus is trying to say is, is if you try and make your life the most important thing, you'll never really find out who you are. We only find out who we actually are. We only find out who God has created us to be when we live in relationships with others and we put 
others' needs before ourselves. That's when we become our best self. Not by finding ourselves, but by losing ourselves. See, you and I, what we must do is we must recover the habit and we must commit to this concept of neighboring well, of being neighborly, of putting others in front of ourselves, of finding ourselves as we live for others. And I'd love to give a vision of what neighborliness can look like. And I'm going to read a part of Scripture. It comes from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29. And so I'm going to read a vision. Go one back there. I'm going to read what Jeremiah wrote. And Jeremiah was a prophet. Jeremiah, basically a prophet, is a mouthpiece for God. And this is what Jeremiah has to say um, to the Israelites who were God's people in uh, chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. Jeremiah says, uh, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have grandchildren. Next slide. Multiply. Do not dwindle away and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your own welfare. Whenever we come across Scripture, we have to ask, what's happening and, and what does it mean to me? <laughs> and so if we, if we go through the Scripture again, if you look it up on your phone, and it's in the app under Engaging Scripture, we always put the Scripture from the series, from the Sunday into the app, so you can go back to it and get your own fingerprints on it. But when we get our fingerprints on this piece of Scripture, what's going on is, is you have God's people, the Israelites, who have been captured by the Babylonians. This happened around 600 B.C. The Babylonians descended upon Israel, and they defeated and deported these Israelite citizens, and they took them away. They took them away, and they planted them into an entirely different land. They did this so that they could destroy the culture of the Israelites. They took all the leaders, they took all the chief priests, they took all of the presidents, they took all the governors, they took all the important people, and they basically deported them, put them in an internment camp so that they could wash away the entire Israelite culture and destroy the neighborhoods that the Israels had built so far. And so you have a people who are ripped out of their home, who have watched family members be killed in the battles, who are absolutely devastated because they've been marched in chains all the way across this land to resettle in Babylon. And they're expecting a Savior. They're expecting God to do something about it. They're hurting. They're lonely. They are completely cut off from anything at all that's familiar to them. And God says this to them. He says, build homes and plan to stay. No, thank you. I just want to go back home. I don't want to stay in this godforsaken place where they've murdered my family and told me that I have to live here now. No, no, thank you. I don't want to build a home and stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. I don't even know what grows here. I'm, I'm hundreds of miles away from my home. I don't know what to plant. I don't know how this works. What do, you, what do you mean, God? Stay here, plant, and eat the fruit. Marry and have children. Find spouses for them that you may have grandchildren. Multiply and don't dwindle. What, how long are we going to be here? 
I don't want that. And, uh, uh, nope, not this next one. No way, God. Work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray for it. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your own welfare. They fought against this. You can keep reading. You can keep going on in Jeremiah 29 if you want to on your own time. But they did not want this. They were in a neighborhood where they hated their neighbors. They had absolutely zero reason to like them and every reason to dislike them. Yet God commanded them to work for the welfare, to work for the prosperity, and pray for people they don't like. And it has to make us think, it has to make us ask. If God expects that of that community, if God gives those people who have every reason to hate their neighbor and not like their neighbor and not work for the prosperity of the neighbor, if God commands that of them, how can we not be expected to do the same thing? You are in much better circumstances, no matter where you think you are. You are in much better circumstances than those people who are dragged off in chains and relocated. And so if God expects them to neighbor well, how can you not be expected to do the same thing? No matter if you like the people that you live around, no matter if you agree with them, no matter if you're on the same political spectrum of not. We are expected to neighbor well. If we are to follow Jesus, if we are to say, you know what, God, you're my father and I need you and I can't do this on my own. If I'm supposed to bear God's image because I'm your child, then I have to look like you and God is a God who neighbors well. See, neighborliness, it's a part of God's character. It's a part of who he is. And so if we're gonna follow Jesus, if we're gonna trust Jesus, then it has to be a part of us as well. There's no better place in the Bible than in the Gospel of John, chapter 114, to see the ultimate example of neighboring. And Eugene Peterson, in his translation of the Bible called the Message Bible, he, put, he writes this about what God did. In John 114, John, John writes that the Word, the capital W, like Word, like authoritative speaking of God, like His essence, becomes flesh. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory of God with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. That, that right there, what Jesus did, he moved into the neighborhood. God became flesh so that he could dwell near us, always and forever. In fact, that's what the word neighbor breaks down to. If you want to break apart the word neighbor, neighbor, nigh-ber. Like the end is nigh, near. Burr, burrow, dwelling. The word neighbor means literally to be a near dweller, to dwell near others. And all out through the entire Bible, you can see God taking a neighboring attitude 
God chooses to neighbor in the very beginning in Genesis where he chooses to walk and talk with Adam and Eve. He chooses to move into their neighborhood, the Garden of Eden, and be with them. He chooses to walk with Moses and the Israelites in Exodus, if you want to go a little bit further. He appears to them. He saves them. He dwells near to them as a pillar of fire at night and a cloud to guide them and give shade and comfort over them during the day. He appears in neighbors in this temple in King David's court, one of the most poetic people of the Bible, one of the most emotional people in the Bible, King David, right in the middle. God chooses to neighbor and dwell near in this temple. And then he gives us the ultimate example of neighboring by putting on human flesh and living and talking and walking and dying for all the humans here on earth so that we would be eternal neighbors with a triune God. Neighboring is all over the Bible. Neighboring is a pattern in the Bible because neighboring is a pattern in God himself. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to take neighboring very, very seriously. And so what I would love for you to do this week is I would love for you to start by really owning a place. Just as Jesus, just as God and the Father and God the Son worked this out in real time, they chose a place to enter history. Entered through Nazareth. They had a real place which they owned in Galilee. And so I want you to think about what place do you want to take responsibility for? Where are you going to refuse to be a victim and instead be an agent? Where are you going to uh, fulfill the same kind of vision that God had in Jeremiah to pray for the welfare of those around you, to pray for and work for the prosperity and peace of those around you? You have to have a real place in this world to be a neighbor and to live out the principles of neighboring that Jesus himself lived out. You can't be a victim. You can't say you don't have time for it. That would have sucked for Jesus to say, I don't have time for you. But he didn't. He says, I have time for you. I will walk with you. And so we have to walk with others as well. And that's what I want you to do. I want you to take a walk this week. I want you to start in your own home. I want you to think about your most immediate neighbors, the people that you live under our same roof with. And I want you to walk from room to room. And I want you to notice things about that room. I want you to walk in the living room and I want you to see what gets left out. (laughs) I want you to see the crap your kids leave on the floor. (laughs) And I want you to notice that about them. I want you to notice, you know, if you have kids in the home, their backpacks and their lunchboxes. If you're living by yourself, I want you to notice your own surroundings. Because it's important that you treat yourself well. It's important that you're on a journey of learning to love yourself as Jesus loved you. Not because you deserve it, but just because he chose to love you. And so I want you to walk around your own home. I want want you to walk around room for room, and I want you to notice things. I want you to learn things. And then I want you to go out the door, and I want you to walk on the street. I want you to walk up or down or across, left or right. It doesn't matter. But I want you to notice the houses, the people, the toys in the yard. I want you to be aware 
of what's going on around you, because how can you love something if you know nothing about it? How can you neighbor someone if you know nothing about them? What would it be like to learn your neighbor's favorite coffee drink? Does that sound weird to you? Does that sound creepy? (laughs) If that sounds creepy to learn that much about somebody, it's only because um, your concept of neighboring has become stunted and underdeveloped. See, you were created with the capacity to know things about your neighbors. You were created with the capacity to remember things about other people, personal things. And it's okay to know personal things about other people when you're doing it out of love for them. And so it's okay to ask personal questions. It's okay to ask where you come from. How are you doing? You know, do you have a good week? What's your high? What's your low? Anything cool happen? That's how you increase social capital. That's how you work, you, you walk and you work the life of neighboring. So take a walk, walk around, notice things, start to learn things, ask questions, and be available. But the number one thing really is not being a victim, not saying that you don't have time, not saying that you, you're too busy, not saying, you know, it's not too weird, but saying, like, I'm going to learn about somebody this week, and I'm going to make them feel special. Would you guys pray with me, please? Father God, I just want to thank you so much for um, taking the time to neighbor with us, looking down at us and saying, I got to move into that neighborhood. I got to move down there. I got to dwell near these people. They need me. They, they, They don't even know they need me, but I'm going to move in, and I'm going to do something about it. Thank you for taking the time to dwell with us. Please, Father, help us just push back against any of that victim mindset that we don't have the time, that it's too weird, that we're too busy. Help us be willing to see others around us, to notice others around around us, be willing to learn about everybody around us so that we can make them feel loved. Again, Jesus, we thank you for neighboring with us. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We can do it. I know you can. This is going to be a three-week series, which means it's a little shorter, which I actually like because it can up the intensity a little bit. Don't leave here today without taking a next step. Don't come back next Sunday. I challenge you not to come back or the Sunday after that without taking a walk in your neighborhood and noticing something about it, something new for the first time. I think you're going to feel your spirit really come alive as you notice the life around you. And that's a really good thing. So thank you for being here today. Two things is if you do feel that loneliness, we've got the groups that are going on. That's a great next step. Or the say yes wall. A lot of people find connection through serving. That's out there too. And if you could stack the chairs, actually, there's an event. There's going to be a little banquet happening later today. Stacks of six of these black chairs would be awesome. And then these, uh, these other chairs that are coffee shop table chairs, if you just put them up against the wall, that would be huge for me because I have to stay after and do it myself if not. So thank you guys. Have a great week.